Hey gang, it's John. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of The Hustle. This is my conversation with filmmaker John Brewer. John is the director of an excellent rock doc that came out last year called Beside Bowie. It's the story of his guitarist, Mick Ronson. Now, I'm assuming, like, you guys are like me, any rock doc, (laughs) it doesn't get more fun and provocative and enjoyable than a good rock doc, does it? Well, this one is great. Um, Now, of course, I'm biased, obviously, because of my feelings for Bowie. Uh, I was really looking forward to the release of this film. It came out last year. It's on Hulu now. I've watched it a couple of times, and it's fantastic tells the whole story about Mick Ronson and why he was important. And let me tell you, I learned so much about what Mick was doing behind the scenes in terms of production and arranging, not even stuff relating just to Bowie, things he did for other artists that I had no idea about. So if you like a good rock doc, you will love this movie. Now, the main reason John and I are talking is because they are releasing a companion soundtrack to this movie. And what's kind of special about this soundtrack is that it's not just some David Bowie greatest hits package. There are two or three songs of Bowie's that you might know if you collect all of his albums, including this one, Cracked Acker, great song. But it's a lot of other stuff, mixed solo stuff, other things he worked on, live performances from uh, the Freddie Mercury tribute show that he did and Live Aid and stuff like that. So. If you like this kind of stuff, it is well worth your attention, if you're a Bowie fan. Uh, Anyway, John is a filmmaker. He's made lots of other rock docs, including one about Bad Company. So at the end of this conversation, I ask him his feelings about our former guest, Brian Howe. I think you will enjoy this conversation. I really hope you check out the movie. And if you're up for it, go get the soundtrack, too. It's excellent. I forgot to ask where John was calling me from, but I assume it's probably London or somewhere nearby. Okay? Well, for starters, um, I think we should probably start with some of the obvious stuff. What uh, He's a really interesting figure. What led you to decide that there needed to be a Mick Ronson documentary out there? Well, I made this film not only for Mick Ronson, but I made it for David Bowie. And the reason I did so was because when I worked with David in 71-72, when Hunky Dory was coming together... I worked very closely with Mick and David, and and that was a partnership. And for various reasons, I went a different way, and we never had a bad word to say about each other. It was always good, but uh, Tony DeVries took over the complete management. You know, we were in different worlds. And so what happened was that I did know that there was some sort of friction going on not necessarily between Mick and David, but in various camps of the problem of Mick not being recognized as a joint writer, as uh, a joint producer, and um, uh, and uh, an arranger. Mm. And um, this was unfortunate, but in those days, and it still happens today to a large extent, it still hasn't been ironed out, but arrangers don't get any points off albums and the problem is that at the end of the day it's quite simple a ranger doesn't get a fee off the publishing and it that's it it's it's fact and it's never been changed and uh i hope one day it does because it'll be a lot simpler for everybody but you made an arrangement uh between each other and mick was such a lovely guy 
And uh, David was so wrapped up in what he was doing, nobody really ever said, well, hold on a minute, I did write that, and I did write this, and I did produce this, and I did... And so, but it never ever happened. And when it did start happening, then nobody really wanted to deal with it, including David and including Mick Ronson. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's no question about it. They both avoided the subject like crazy. Mm -hmm. And um, De Vries didn't want it to happen because he was managing... Mick Ronson, as well as David Bowie. Mm. And he basically was quite happy the way it was going because he contractually had got David tied up. He then got Mick Ronson tied up and then tried to replace David because he'd lost power with David the moment after Diamond Dogs. I mean, Diamond mm. Dogs was the last time that DeFries really had any say in anything. Yeah. And uh, what happened was that Mick Ronson... He tried to make a star of Mick Ronson and failed miserably because Mick Ronson isn't a front man and is not another David Bowie. Yeah. So that took place. And with all of that friction going on, I suppose Mick Ronson died. And I was uh, concerned because he died in 93. And I wonder where the hell I'd been between mm-hmm. 1980, whatever it is, and 93. Why hadn't I gone to his rescue in a sort of way? But, you know, he he was fulfilling his what he wanted to do. And little did I know at that time, of course, they were coming back together at that time, yeah. at 90, 91. Yeah. They had big plans, and they were going to do something. There's no question about it. And they just ran out of time because Mick Ronson died. Yeah. And David still, without having done whatever he was going to do, Ryan left Tom, and he then died. Yeah. And there was friction between the estate of Mick Ronson and David. Oh, really? I don't particularly, I don't particularly want to go into that because it, it's not, I don't know. Nobody, David didn't say this to me, nor did Mick Ronson say this, but his, Mick Ronson's wife was not Mick Ronson. Yeah. And David said, well, what am I going to do? Go settle something now with Mick Ronson's wife? I mean, that's uh-huh. not going to happen. Yeah. And so it never happened. Mm. And so I just thought Mick Ronson should be recognized yeah. for what he did. Good, okay. And that was the idea of the movie. Good. Now, everything you just said, there's five or six follow-up questions regarding various topics of uh, based on everything that you just said, but let's go for a couple of them. First of all, the arranging, that's a big part of the movie, I feel like. Um, so you saying this makes a lot more sense to me. We don't, I mean, I'm one of the biggest Bowie fans there is, but I had no idea how involved Mick was in, for instance, the string arrangements on Life on Mars. On the Mary Cow's tortured brow That Mickey Mouse has grown up a cow and now the workers have struck for fame Cause Lennon's on sale again See the mice in their million hordes from Ibiza to the Norfolk Broads Blue Britannia is out of bounds To my mother, my dog and clowns But the film is a sad thing for Cause I wrote it ten times or more It's about to be written again As I ask you to vote It's the freakiest show. 
I didn't know that he was as involved as he was on Lou Reed's Transformer album, on the string arrangements on like Perfect Day and uh, Wild Side and stuff like that. Just a perfect day. Problems all left alone. Weekenders on our own. It's such fun. Just a perfect day. You made me forget myself. I thought I was someone else, someone good. Oh, it's such a perfect day. I'm glad I spent it with you. Oh, such a perfect day. You just keep me hanging on. You just keep me hanging on. So your your movie kind of makes a pretty bold claim that those the 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 pixie dust that makes those particular songs especially so magical, which are the strings, came out of Mick's mind. I mean, is that true? Yeah, he wrote all of it. That is crazy. How did that not get out sooner? How were other bands like I don't know ELO or I mean, I guess Ian Hunter eventually, you know took Mick under his wing, but Mick should have had a much bigger career as a, as a producer than he had. Why did yeah, it not who happen? Was, who, who was representing him? Oh, is that it? Okay. I mean, you know, you look at that situation and wherever he went, Tony DeFries went and tried to break up the management. He tried to do it with, uh, Ian Hunter. He did it, tried to do it with, um, Mellencamp, he yeah. tried to do it with Bad Company, he tried to do it with, I mean, everywhere he went, anybody that, that, uh, that had anything to do with anybody that, uh, that Ronson was involving himself with, he tried to push himself in through the door or put the foot through the door, uh, on, uh, in between the door. Yeah. And the fact is that uh, if you want to really know, he even tried it with my film. Really? And, you know, the thing is that, um, yeah, I mean, the story is not, it, it, you know, when the film covers it, it, it covers the fact that, you know, there's DeFries sending a limousine for Mick Ronson yeah. uh, for rehearsals, and everybody else in, in Mot the Hoople is getting into the back of a, a van, you know? Yeah. I mean... Well, where's that going to lead? And then yeah. you basically got to the situation that, you know, all the way along, including Bob Dylan, including everybody, mm -hmm. the, 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 the real guys that were experienced in this world turned around and went, uh-uh, you're not coming this way. Right, right. And, um, you know, that's that Ian Hunter said he didn't want him any involvement. You know, he had his own manager. And uh -huh. all he said was, this guy keeps arguing with my manager. I mean, I can't get on. Oh, man. So um, huh. that's... 
that's what happened. And, so it sounds um, like this is a defreeze issue more than anything yeah. else. Okay. Well, one day that'll that'll all come out. But yeah. the the thing was with Lou Reed. I mean, you can't get more simpler than Lou Reed turning around and saying, "That Ronson, he's good." I, I mean, uh, listen to this. <laughs> that was really touching. That really knocked me out, especially coming from New- Lou Reed, who's not the most complimentary no. of any person. You know what I mean? That's right. Yeah. And, and, of course, with Morrissey as well and with other people um, that Mick worked with, he was very much uh, an arranger producer. And he would have been, he would have found his feet. There's no question about it, you know. Yeah. But he was just so open and nice, you yeah. know. And, yeah, um, sounds that way. Now, you alluded, I, I again, I have a lot of follow-up questions on some of these people, but you alluded to earlier that Mick and David were finally in the early 90s starting to kind of have some ideas of things they wanted to do together. Do you know what those ideas were? I know that, no. that Mick plays uh, just on I Feel Free on the Black Tie White Noise album. There was going to be a complete collaboration. Uh, There's no question about it. Wow. I don't know where those tapes are. Um, I'm not privileged. I know they're not lost. Okay. Um, you've got 10 years of Dave, Mr. Bowie coming with wow. uh, instructions on how it's to be released and everything else. Huh. Oh, that's fascinating. Now, you met... Okay, so let's talk about Bowie for a second. His voice is very eerily present in the beginning of the movie but he's not on screen um how did that happen i was him not actually appearing on screen a choice he made you made did he not look well enough what was this deal there it alluded to the original problem that he had with um i think the estate and mrs ronson Hmm. because at that time he wasn't doing interviews Uh and i think that he was worried about the way he looked Um, I think the jowls and everything else concerned him, which wouldn't concern many people. He was definitely getting older, Mm -hmm. but uh, he said, well, I don't know. Can I not just write these wonderful quotes? Because that's the best thing to do. And I don't want to, you know, I know how David did interviews. I mean, he would do an interview by going and saying, right, I need my camera people to come in. I need Mm -hmm. it at a certain angle i need this done that done this filter on that filter on shot on that and this wow and 
it was a very heavy situation if you wanted to film him. Now, he knew me well, so the fact is I would have had no problem. But when they approached him, I wasn't in the picture. Yeah. And what happened was that Mrs. Ronson was, and she said she wanted to do a documentary. And that's how he suggested that he do some... Because he knew, David was new, he knew exactly what was going to happen. Yeah. And um, she started and said, I've got this wonderful quotes from David and this and that. And when they came to me, they tried to start making a documentary that was awful. And I just said, we start again, hmm. but I need this stuff from David. And I took it and I was supposed to be meeting with David, I think on the 29th or around that time in January. Oh. And of course he died. Yeah. So yeah. that was that year. So I'd basically been working on it for a couple of months and I'd went, well, this is unbelievable. I sat down and I said, David's mapped out all my chapters. Mm. And I said, well, then let's put his contribution in as the voiceover and, and then go from there rather than yeah. basically, you know, start trying to patch together uh, archive and stuff. Yeah. Because with David, that was very difficult anyway, because he looked so different every time you saw him. So, sure, sure. You know, it, 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 it was not easy to do. So I then sort of realized that I had the piece and that I could do that with, and that's what happened. Yeah. Yes, it had been done about a year before, but uh, or a year and a half before, but the reason was that he wasn't too happy with having his interview out there mm. without knowing who was going to direct and everything else. So. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I wondered what the backstory on that. And then speaking of backstories, why is Morrissey not in the film? I mean, ah, producing your Morrissey arsenal was. seems to be the the thing that it's the, like Mick being the phoenix that rises. You know, yeah. he's. suddenly found this new lease on his creative life. He's going to be a producer and he's got a big name to produce and it's a great album. And then there's no Morrissey on there. Yeah. Well, Morrissey hated Bowie. What? Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mo Morrissey uh, was in with Bowie and then he was out with Bowie and then he was in with Bowie. Then he was out with Bowie and he liked Mick. He still says it. He says that Mick was the engines to David Bowie. Yeah. And he was that. the motor. Uh -huh. And uh, he actually didn't like my title, Beside Bowie. Uh -huh. He said Ronson was never beside Bowie. He was the man that was his motor and engine. 
and he made it all happen. And, you know, when David died, um, Morrissey had fallen out with him. So, you know, I had difficult problems, and I, I said, well, are you going to take part? And he went, nope. I'd wow. Take part with anything with David Bowie's name on it. What? Not even to honor Mick, which is the whole point. No, of the no, movie. no. Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether you know Morrissey. He's probably one of the most difficult people in the world to work with. Yeah, I heard that. Yep. And he's very difficult. And yeah. um, that was his choice, and I respected that. I said, okay. Wow. But, um, you know, I mean. <laughs> he needs to relax. Gosh. Yeah. I mean, okay. look, look what he did with um, um, uh, Melancholy. Yeah, well, that was going to be my next question. I don't know if people know Jack and Diane that the arrangement for that is mix. That's crazy. Yes. Yes. And and that had been sitting around as a song for years. And uh, Mick got hold of it. And that's what you got. A number one record. Wow. The dynamics. I mean, you know, I've heard Kenny Aronoff talk about the drum solo in that song, but that everything, the dynamics of that song from the hand claps to you know when it's acoustic versus when it's an electric guitar that's one of that's a beautiful song from a production standpoint and mick was involved in all of that i never would have guessed yeah he produced all of that and made that happen and everybody said wow yeah yeah so um why do you think well i mean i think i know the answer but i'll i'll ask you this anyway why do you sure. think mick's solo career never really took off. I mean, did he even want to make Slaughter?
Yeah, I think he wanted to make slaughter. The only problem with slaughter was that the fact is that why are you making slaughter? You're making slaughter to go and make Mick Ronson a solo artist. Why are you going to make him a solo artist? Uh, because he, he he could be. Mm-hmm. No, he couldn't. He's not. He's not a front man. So whatever it's going to be, it's uh, going to fail because he's just not a front man. Yeah. But if you want to go and make a classic album, then he could probably go and make a classic album. But don't go and put him out as a front man and think that he's going to wear feather boas and he's going to look the part, uh-huh. and then he's going to take off. Because my theory was, with those days, you needed four records, four tracks. That were singles, and if you didn't have four singles on the album, then you didn't have the album. Uh-huh. Yeah. And if you followed that rule of thumb, right, then um, you would have an artist. Well, the problem was it was wrapped together very quickly, and the problem was that he he was a guitarist, man. You know yeah. what guitarists like in, in in those days? Everybody basically played long-winded guitar solos and that's how records were put together so it's like go make a gene genie and put it on slaughter and then expect it to be a hit no uh, i can't make a gene genie because that was done that anyway i I, but i can do this and i can do that and i can take his song and i can do that well you know it's difficult. Yeah. And that's what happened with Slaughter. Yeah, sure, he wanted to make Slaughter, but he wanted Slaughter to be different, I think. Uh-huh. Okay. At the end of it, he didn't do badly with it. It no. just was, the, you know. Yeah. I have it. I mean, it's a, it's a great album. It's not essential necessarily. And you can tell, I mean, this is not a, you, you said it too, and I think he's known for this. It's not necessarily a knock, but he just isn't a front man type personality. He looks great. And his guitar sounds great, and he even has a decent voice. But for whatever reason, it's not charismatic enough to carry him as the as the front man, as a rock star unto himself. He's much better backing no, up exactly somebody right. else. And, and, and if you look at Bowie, I mean, that didn't come from Bowie going, well, read instructions on the third page, what right. to do next. <laughs> it came within, yeah. you know? Yeah, it and sure did. And you can't go and say... To Mick, which they did say, oh now put uh, put this tunic on it's like a little dress and everything else, and you yeah. go what? Yeah. Well, you want me to go out there? No way. And <laughs> then they said, well, can you put some eye lashes on and can you do this? Well, Mick Ronson's going to go. Are you off your tiny mind? <laughs> right. You know, I, I mean, you know, it's yeah. not me. And but but David, it was. And yeah. David lapped all that up and Angie was behind all of that and Angie basically pushed it and pushed it and she was very important to the success of David Bowie yeah. but the problem at the end of the day was Mick Ronson went along with it but if you ask Mick Ronson to come up with ideas to promote his record his tour he wouldn't have the foggiest idea right right what's your what's your opinion on Angie Bowie she's such a divisive character you know okay. such a big character uh, a- Angie Bowie is a very unique character. Angie Bowie had a very strange upbringing. She had a, you know, her father was in the army and in the, up out in Greece somewhere or Cyprus. And she was brought up in that regimental way and she rebelled and um, she, uh, all sorts of things. I think she 
found out that she was bisexual at a very early age, and um, she liked the girls, you know, and um, that was great fun. And then she basically, everything was fun, and uh, then she arrived in London. She was out to get a job. She knew some record people, and um, then she met David, and the next thing was she met David, brought David to Mercury or whatever it was, and before you knew what had happened, the relationship had started. Because I... You know, I'd taken over at that time trying to sell Man Who Sold the World outside of the UK. Mm. And there was no US release of that at that time. And it was like I was being told by presidents of record companies, John, we've got enough problems selling records of guys that wear trousers, let alone <laughs> guys that wear dresses. <laughs> And and, and, yeah. and that was, you know, think back to where those sure. days were. You know, people didn't really understand that. Of course. And in fact, they don't understand it now. You no. walk down Nashville in, dress, in a dress and see what happens. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, so I've always... Angie was... Oh, Angie's a great girl. She's like, um, in, in her age now, she's like, her voice is three times louder than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And um, she's still opinionated, and she doesn't mind you being opinionated, but you better be able to stand up to her opinion. Yeah. And I just feel that, uh, in a way, she's very talented. She's not an artist. She's not an artist, uh, singer, or songwriter, but she's very talented with her ideas. And I think she got badly treated. Really? Okay. Interesting. There's such various opinions about her, and some people feel like you do, and some people just want to crucify her and uh, because, yeah, because of how big we, she is. Because she's outspoken, and she yeah. says she calls um, pork pork, and she calls yeah. lamb lamb. You know, yeah. and it, some people don't like that. They go, well, "Can it be lamb pork?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so I watched this movie a couple of months ago, and then I watched it again when I knew that I was going to be talking to you. And in between. Um, I read Tony Visconti's biography, um, From Bowie to Bolin, or whatever it's called. Anyway, it's a great book. Yeah. And he mentions, and he mentions what a nice guy Mick is. Too nice, if anything. Um, and I think your movie sort of asserts this as well. I also interviewed uh, a couple years ago Hilly Michaels, who had worked closely with Mick in the late 70s for a little while, Mick and Ian. Do you think that Mick's just general niceness was ultimately maybe even almost a hindrance to him being uh, more successful, if not especially maybe more financially successful? Because it sounds as if... Oh, there's no no question about it. Really? Okay, because it sounds like he and Susie struggled their whole lives to capitalize on him being one of the best guitarists ever. Look, I, I think that Susie, who is his hairdresser, basically, who's Bowie's hairdresser, and she was on tour, and I think Susie and Mick fell in love. Uh-huh. And I don't think there's any question about that. Susie turned something out into something else. And um, rock and roll will do that. First uh-huh. of all, there was no drugs like there were in the late 70s. You know, the, the, in the 60s, you took drugs for various reasons. It then got dark, and in the 70s, late 70s, it was darker, mm-hmm. and it was doing a lot of damage. And 
at the end of the day, people didn't really know what the next step was. You either stopped or you didn't stop, or you couldn't really sort of go a little bit here and a little bit there. Mm -hmm. So I think that took over, and I think Mick Ronson basically took a lot of drugs, as did David did, and so did Susie. And their relationships and whatever it was was always on the borderline. Mm -hmm. It was on the borderline. He would go, and he was a very generous guy. He went and did the Bob Dylan tour. He came back, everybody got a paycheck. He didn't, he got a bill. Yes. Why? Because he bought everybody a drink after the show in the bar every night. Yeah. And basically, everybody, he was like, I don't know, being Mick. Yeah. And, you know, um, the way that uh, Mick uh, had the arrangement with uh, DeFries was, whatever DeFries whatever Mick Ronson wanted, DeFries would buy. What you do, that's like with your children, giving them what they want. Yeah. So they want this, and they get that, then they put that down, they want this, they want that, they want this, they want that, until eventually all they want to do is to want something. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the old school way of managing people, knuckle them down to, say, control their funding. They didn't even know, you know... Uh, how to go into a supermarket. Yeah. Because somebody went around, picked up a bag of stuff, and brought it around to their flat or apartment. Right. And that's how, basically, it was the, 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 the let leash was on them. And I think that at the end of the day, that was difficult to understand. What do you mean? I can't buy him a drink. I just bought everybody a drink. They were great on the road, weren't they? Fine. But it just cost you $150, $250. And you go, oh, well, I bought them two rounds. Oh, well, that's $500. <laughs> And oh, so it would sad. go on. And yeah. I think that Susie was getting very worried. Yeah. And they had that house in Woodstock, and I think that they couldn't understand why they couldn't basically get money against that or whatever it is. I don't know. I didn't know their finances in those days. But I think he came back to England, as you do, and um, he went to work, and he went to work, and he got paid for his work. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know, financially, do I believe that if he'd had control over himself and hadn't been such a nice guy, yes, he probably would have made an awful lot more money. Mm -hmm. What he needed was the right manager. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like and, it. Um, <clears throat> and yeah. like we said, just as Morrissey's Your Arsenal sort of, you know, blossoms this new side of his career, he dies. Right as he finds the path that could have led to this kind of to greater rock immortality, you know, not only is he a great player, but he's a great producer, and he's going to ride out the rest of his days getting credit for that, I guess. And it's yeah. unfortunate. Well, he was going to work with Tina, uh, uh, Tina. I yes, Tina Turner. That Tina was going to be my next question. So he was. Yeah. I recently interviewed Rupert Hine who did oh, really? work on The Private Dancer, and he told me the whole story about that album. It's crazy. I didn't know any of this beforehand, but Mick was supposed to have been one of the producers that worked on that album, and he turned it down? No, that's not what happened. Oh, what happened? What, 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 what happened was simply that, basically, he went down, saw Tina. Tina loved him, and she, she I don't know whether she had shoes on or not, but he suddenly went, you've got a corn on your toe. Oh, that's right. And, <laughs> And and he, he she said, yeah, I have. She said, I got one just like that. And he pulled his foot out and said, look. And they started laughing hilariously about they'd both got the same sort of corn on their toes. 
uh-huh. and that they were talking about music, and suddenly it was reduced to talking to Dutch. She loved Mick, uh-huh. and Mick loved it, but Mick talked himself out of everything because he was totally genuine. Yeah, He just went talking about what he could do, he couldn't do, could do, couldn't do. Before you knew what happened, was exhausted it. Yeah. And I think that he just went, oh, I don't, I don't know whether I could make it on Tuesday, you know. And um, Jeez. it was like the story that um, when he went to work with Morrissey and they phoned him up and uh, he answered the phone and says that Morrissey's friend phoned him up and asked him, somebody worked with Morrissey, phoned him up and said to him, could you come and see Morrissey on tomorrow? And he went, oh, no, I can't come tomorrow. I'm babysitting. <laughs> and so, well, could, could you not find somebody else to sit in for the baby? Just because, you know, Morrissey's number one at the moment. And, you know, right. said, well, no, I couldn't do that. I'm babysitting the baby for the, my sister, you know. Uh, well, let me see what I can do. I'll come back to you, you know. And, and then he'd go back and say, oh, yeah, I found a babysitter, so we're okay, you know. <laughs> and that would, that's Mick Ronson. And, you know, uh, he needed the force behind Tina Turner yeah. to say, okay, we need to do this. Yeah. And let's block that out. But nobody would block anything out. He'd just grab his bag and off he'd go. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh. don't forget Tina at that time was sitting in the south of France not short of a penny or two, and yeah. and just saying, okay, fine, I'm ready, you know, when yeah. and it just never happened. Yeah. Oh, it's a shame. He would have been perfect for that. That's too bad. Yeah. Um, all right, well, we should talk about the soundtrack, since we hadn't gotten to it yet, but that's, that's the main motivator for us having this conversation. A soundtrack right. for Beside Bowie is finally coming out. Um, I think it should come out around the day that this episode, this interview comes out. Um and it's a really interesting soundtrack because it's not full of stuff that you probably already own. There's some unique, different uh, things sprinkled in there. What was the? Tell me about the creation of the soundtrack. Did you have a hand in picking these songs? Yeah, of course I did. I did the whole thing with Bill. Levinson. You did I mean, good. Well, Bill Evanson and I put our heads together, and uh, we had a few disagreements about it. But I mean, at the end of the day. Um, you know, he wanted to include the, uh, the Melton John track. I can see very well. There's a boat on the reef with a broken back. And I can see it very well.
wanted to include um, several other things that I thought were quite right. But, you know, then on the other hand, if you listen to the album now, um, you probably haven't had a chance to listen to it because it's not out. It comes out on the six. It uh, comes out on the sixteenth, which is Father's Day weekend. Oh, okay. Of June. I was off by a week. Okay. I think I think it's. Uh, well, maybe it comes out the eighth. That's it's what I was told. For, yeah, I was for told the, the Father's Day weekend. Yeah. And um, yeah, so uh, yeah, like a Rolling Stone is my favorite track. Ah. Like a Rolling Stone, and, that's not even on here. Uh, oh, yeah, it is. Never mind. There it is. I'm sorry. Yep, from Heaven and Hole. Uh, and, and that's baby. That's, uh, that's David singing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really cool, but also sort of strange, out of nowhere version of that song. That's right. Yeah. I think that's wonderful. Yeah. Also, Heroes is on there, which he should have played anyway on the original. And it was his song. Definitely a play, and uh, that's live off the tribute to Freddie Mercury. Yeah, yeah. And of course, there's a whole story about the Freddie Mercury situation where uh, Taylor had basically insisted that uh, David come and play, and David said yes, only if Mick Ronson can come and that's play great. guitar. That's great. And that's how he came, and that's because he was working with him. But yeah. you know, he knew that he knew that there wasn't long to go because. Yeah. Mick had told David, you know, Mick, I think, died three weeks afterwards. So, That's crazy. Yeah, he was in the studio the night before. Oh and then he went up to bed, he said, I don't feel very good now, I'm going to sleep. And he woke up and then he died. And oh. that was that. And, you know, the thing was that um, when he played Heroes, that's the greatest version I've ever hear, heard of that song. Yeah. 
you know, to me, it was really important. So those were two of my favorite tracks. Good. And I insisted that those went on. And um, there's three Bowie tracks on there from, um, you know, yeah. which kindly, you know, I was allowed to use. Yep. Time, and, Cracked um, Actor, and Moon Age Daydream, in case anyone's interested. Yeah, and they they are two, three songs. That, I mean, David talks about time. I mean, mm -hmm. so therefore that was a natural. He said that nobody could have played the guitar like he did or an arrangement like he did with guitar on time. And that yeah. was... That was unreal. Scream with boredom, you are not evicting time. I could have put on, you know, Starman, all that. But the fact is, we've got that everywhere. Sure. And I just thought that these tracks should really be exploited, uh, you know. And and I love that album. I love it. They just Good. delivered a copy to me, uh, the vinyl copy. And it's so heavy. And I got mm. hold of it. And I went, God, this reminds me of the record days. Yeah. And it looks so good. Good. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great one to play, too. Good. Well, I hope people will check it out. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention, I, I think the star of your movie is Joe Elliott from Def Leppard. He just seems <laughs> like he just seems like the most regular guy and so interesting to be when he's interviewed. Um, and he has a song on the soundtrack called This Is For You, which I don't I haven't heard, but I think it's it was done specifically for this soundtrack, correct? No, no. Oh, no. Uh, this is for you was a guy uh, called 
Laurie Heath. Laurie Heath okay. wrote that song. He was in a band called Milkwood, and before that, he was in a band called The New Seekers. Hmm. And he uh, was managed by me, actually, right at the early days, and he used to play this song live. Hmm. And Mick Ronson loved this song. Oh. And he basically... Cr- uh, made a version of it, and it, mm-hmm. it went out on Play Don't Worry. Okay. And Mick Ronson sings that song on Play Don't Worry. This is for you. How are you doing? It's been a while. Unfortunately, Dupreece owns the publishing on it. Ah, okay. Or, no, he, re- he owns the recording on it, and he stopped us using it. Mm-hmm. And so, extraordinary enough, I was talking to Joe Elliott, and he said, you know, I recorded this song called This Is For You. So I said, you did? I uh, said, yes. He said, I loved that song. Mm-hmm. So basically, I've recorded it. And I said, would you let me put it into the film and on the soundtrack? And he said, yes. So that's what I did. Nice. And so it's Joe Elliott singing This Is For You. Laurie Heath, unfortunately, has been on his back for nine years. He's got some problem with his back. Oh, no. Uh, he was over the moon to know Good. that he was, his song was going out there, and I made sure it did. But Joe, um, I think, did a great version of it. Okay. And uh, you should ask Cece to get him to, 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 to do an interview because he's supporting love us to. doing interviews. I would too. love to. When I mentioned his name, you started to chuckle. Why? Is there a story there? His life has almost started again, hasn't it? I mean, yeah. there's Def Leppard out there yeah. uh, doing it again. And um, in a way, I, I like that. I like the fact that they fought... It was like David and Goliath. They fought Universal and the big uh, Goliath, and um, and said, "No, we're not. Uh, you know, nobody's going to have our songs like that." And uh, yeah. you know, and all of a sudden there was this big row because when they were kids, nobody had ever heard of mm-hmm. you know downloading songs. Uh-huh. And um, you know, there he is uh, out there knocking the shit out of his act every night. You know, all of a sudden, everyone's reacting to Def Leppard again. Yeah. And now he's sort of given way and come to some arrangement with Universal. But it's like, uh, yeah, he stands for what he stands for. And yeah. he was a schoolboy in the yard, you know, uh-huh. when he first heard the spiders and everything. So he became one of the biggest fans. And he is yeah. genuinely a fan yeah. when he was out of the music business, let alone in. Yeah. And so it's like going forward. I mean, we've all got those bands we went to see. Yep. And uh, we had nothing to do with them, but we went to see. I mean, I was a great fan of Elton John. Mm-hmm. And I saw him 
with Lady Samantha before mm. any of that stuff and burned down the mission and all of that. Wow. And it was wonderful. And uh, then the Elton John came out. It was like came out the cracker doing something else. And you uh-huh. were, wow, that's not the guy I originally saw. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Oh, that's funny. And yeah. uh, so, you know, that's, so Joe Elliott's the biggest fan of Bowie and, and more important, the biggest fan of Mott the Hoople. Yes. Yeah. Because that's what turned him around. Yes. He's put and out a course, couple albums of Mott the Hoople. What's uh, Joe Elliott and the Rats or something? I can't remember the name of the band, but he's got like a side project where he does only Mott the Hoople songs. Yeah, that, his fandom really comes out, and I think he's sort of the secret weapon of your movie. He, I could have sat and listened to him talk about Mick for two hours. He was so well. He could do. Yeah, I mean, I'm he, sure could he could actually talk to you about Mick Ronson for a lot longer than two hours. I'm, I believe Mick, it. Mick, Mick Ronson was um, uh, a, a big hero of Joe's, yeah. and more importantly, he, he he sort of fulfilled the jigsaw. Yeah. So you know, he, he filled that bit. You know the. Joe Elliott was a great fan. Yeah. He was a great fan, and um, that's it. It's yeah. full stop. He, yeah. he knows every single note. Yeah, he's great. Uh, let's talk about you just now while we're getting ready to kind of wrap up here. You, What's your history? Because you're, you're a talking head in this movie, and you reference a few times, and you've done it on here, when we did this or when we did that. So you're, you were a part of the inner circle at one point. What's your history here? In about 1970, I went into the, actually it was 69, I went into the record business. It's coming up to 50 years ago. Wow. And um, I had a band, and um, Lawrence Myers, who's in the movie, uh-huh. uh, it's a long story, but heard the band and thought it was a hit record, hmm. and got me to come in. And the one thing, to a company called Gem. And Gem was the birth of Tony... DeFries, myself, uh, several people who, uh, like Mike Leander and songwriters, and uh, they brought me in to actually work independently. Now, I was never really employed by Jim, but I ac- uh, took over the side of management, which was like organizing the venues, because everything in those days was n- not about records. It was about gigs. It's mm-hmm. like today. There was nobody booking gigs, and that's what I was doing night and day with this band of mine. So I just took over and started. I booked up the friars for David and everything else, and that was the. And then, of course, um, nobody really knew how to hang. You know, Lawrence is ten, fifteen years older than I am, and 
Mr. Freese, who's about 10 or 15 years older than I am. So I was able to hang out with Bowie, mm -hmm. and they would be at home, you know. So mm -hmm. then what happened was that I fell out with the Freese, really, and mm -hmm. just it was a clear, not, nothing big, but I just said, I'm sorry, and there was a reason I'm not going to do that. And I left. He walked away from uh, Lawrence Myers and started up... Um, main man and um i took about i worked with bill wyman and uh he had a band called tucky buzzard and i worked with him and tucky buzzard and then i went took over alvin lee 10 years after mm -hmm. and uh, there was this band called milkwood which was mm -hmm. a spring off of the new seekers and I then went and I started managing billy ocean and people like oh, that i love and, billy ocean yeah oh, yeah he's yes. great and then I went to um, America, and I had a, a number one record with Jerry Rafferty called Baker Street. It's the best. And I then, then basically with Alvin, we made four albums together, and and then you know I, I was well seated then, and then I formed a label, and this, and I went on and on and on until mm -hmm. I made I made quite a lot of money, and um, then I took over the management of Yes mm. and put them back together again. And I uh, became very friendly with Mr. Erdogan, Ahmed Erdogan, and we traveled the world together. And and then what happened was that one day, um, and I've probably skipped a few of them, but one day I decided that uh, I want to go and make a movie. And mm -hmm. I started to learn, and I became the fourth largest independent distributor in the UK. And um, uh, video had just started in the early 80s. And uh, then what happened was that took me to Hollywood, where I became a producer and did the, the studio shit. And um, then I left, came back, and I said, look, the one thing that nobody's doing is doing these documentaries properly. Yeah. yeah. And I went to the BBC, and they went, well, you know, it's budget, and it's all time, it's difficult. And I said, well, if you're not going to do it, uh, they said, we didn't say we're not going to do it. And mm. I said, well... There's something wrong here. So I just said, well, I'm going to do it. So I went and did it. And after the 19th documentary, I think it is now, yeah. I'm still doing it. I love it. I love and, it. Um, the next one up is Chuck Berry. Oh, great. Okay. And, uh, you know, we're nearly finished there. That's authorized by Toddy, his wife. And um, God, we had to fight to get that and uh, got that. Now, is this going to be a and, warts and uh, all Chuck Berry documentary? Yeah, I mean, you know something, uh, it's an interesting one that you should ask that question. You know, um, I'm not quite sure where the waltz are, other than he got arrested and mm -hmm. uh, it was a big racism against him and race, race, there's a race card there. And, you know, um, he sort of, it was always like the, the boy at school that always got caught, but wasn't necessarily the one that started mm -hmm. it, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, he could have avoided... 90% of the problems he faced. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, uh, the, the story is based basically about Charles Berry, who basically brought up a wonderful family. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he, he, he left $54 million. Mm. Dollars oh, I didn't know and that. And about wow. $200 million in real estate. Wow. And at the end of the day, and um, once he walked out of the door, he became Chuck Berry. Yeah. 
who was a great lover of white women and everything else that went with them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, nobody disputes that. I mean, yeah. I'm the only person that's ever interviewed his wife about it, and she was quite open about it. Oh, so interesting. Good. Okay. So, so if those are the waltz, I mean, yes, but... Well, you yeah. Know, people went to reform school and left at 19. There's loads of friends of sure. yours that ended up oh, there, I'm and sure. there's mine and everything else. It Including me. There. Yeah. I, I'm yes. I'm with you. I get it. I just, uh, yeah, he's got uh, a checkered past there. I was just curious how in-depth it was going to be. Let me ask you one question about, uh, first of all, I, I'm t you and I should talk one more time, some other time, about all the other things you've done besides beside Bowie, because uh, you're touching on all of these things that I would love to hear stories about. But one thing in particular I wanted to ask you before I let you go. Um, I have not seen it, but you did a documentary on Bad Company. Yes, sir. And I had Brian Howe on here recently. I, I want to know, I haven't seen the movie, so I don't know. Does Brian Howe come up at all or factor in? What's his place in the history of Bad Company? Because I think well, he feels probably rightly that he's been sort of shoved out of the, uh, of the history. If you're making a documentary on on free or you're making a documentary on bad company don't mention Hal's name if you want Paul to basically take part mm. because you won't get him to take part in it interesting so you know what do you do I mean Paul the voice Paul Rogers is the man yeah. and if, if there wouldn't be a bad company there wouldn't have been a free without Paul Rogers I don't yeah. care what anybody says very true Paul Rogers had various problems like you know you say waltz i mean uh -huh. you know he it was drinking very heavily there were problems within the band um the band came from especially bad company came was created out of um free which which carried a tremendous problem because he blames uh, 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 I don't know whether he blames himself, but he blames a lot on the fact the band didn't stand by mm -hmm. Paul Kossoff and they could have done something about it. He was doing the drugs in front of the band and the band should have stumped all over them. But they were kids. They weren't even 20. Yeah. yeah. You know? And Paul, I think, lives with that today. He's as clean, as clean, as clean as a whistle. I mean, mm -hmm. talk about exercising every day and his wife, of course, now, Cynthia, basically makes sure that he's at the top of his Good. peak of his health. Good. And I, I go like, uh, yeah, well, where did Hal come in? Well, um, uh, Mick Ralph said to me, well, uh, Paul wouldn't go out on the road. Yeah. Yep. And, and we had this enormous following and he won't go out on the road. Yeah. And one day I just had enough of it. And the next thing is that that was it. And you know, the problem with Paul, and, and I think that scarred Mick Ralph and Paul Rogers, because then Paul Rogers formed the Paul Rogers Band and, you know, and what have you. And then basically they got back together again. Then there was a problem because of the drugs. Yeah. You know, you had Simon Kirk, who was trying to keep clean, and you had Paul Rogers, who was trying to keep clean, 
And then you had Boz and you had um, Mick Ralphs. And Boz mm-hmm. was out of his brain to the day he died, I yeah. mean, on drink and whatever. And Mick Ralphs loved the, 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 the powder. Mm-hmm. And the next thing that happened was you got two people walking on stage having been up half the night, basically having a whirl of time playing right. rock and roll. And you got two people right. who had gone to bed at 8 o'clock and basically got up, cleaned their shoes and gone to work playing rock <laughs> oh, and roll. Oh, that's great. And so at the end of the day, what do you get? You get basically a problem. And in between that came a man that started trying to fill Paul Rogers' shoes. So when you say, was he part of the history? For a, I don't know what, what he did even, whether he did a UK tour even. I mean, I think he did some dates in America and did dates in the UK. Mm-hmm. But then what he did was really stupid. He went out and took the name and tried to use the name. Mm-hmm. And that was the finale. Okay. And, yeah. Um, I think now he has to bill himself as former lead singer of Bad Company, I think is how it... Legally yeah. or officially goes down now, yeah. Yeah, but okay. you see, and 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 Paul never forgave Mick for that. Mm. He said, "What right have you got to allow him? Yeah, to basically allow to go out and use the name, and and in a way, he should have topped it on the head and said, Look, 'Look, I'm not part of that company. I'm, yeah. you know, my myself, and this yeah. is my new band.' Yeah." But you see, in those days, people said, oh, well, I've got to get people in the door. I've got to get people through the gate. Well, the right. reason you get people through the gate is you've got to give them some sort of marquee value. And this is the name. And who am I? Oh, you're from Bad Company. Don't mm-hmm. ever say anything else. And before the, the guy probably didn't ever say in it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I um, yeah, I think there's a lot of, um, I don't know, some secrets, some uh, some bad blood back in there. Brian was a really nice guy, but he... Felt he was treated unfairly, and I'm sure the other guys have a uh, a similar story to tell. Uh, well, you know, he didn't pull the numbers. He didn't yeah. pull the numbers. And if you don't pull the numbers, and Paul Rogers comes in and says, yeah. I'm going to pull the numbers. Yeah. Well, he's not going to pull Paul Rogers' numbers, but he did keep them afloat there for about five or six years with uh, some hits and a couple million albums sold. And um, Yeah. But he's just, he's an outlier in the Bad Company history. And so, anyway... Well, um, thank you, uh, thank you, John, for talking to me. I loved your movie, and I watched it. Like I said, thank I watched you. it, and I and I loved it because I'm a huge Bowie guy and a Mick guy and everything. And like two or three days later, CC emails me and says, "Hey, are you interested in interviewing John Brewer about the release of the soundtrack?" And it couldn't have come at a more perfect time. And so, thank yeah. you for all that you've put out there in the world. I'm very grateful, and I love it, and uh, I appreciate you talking to me. There you have it, John Brewer. Wasn't that guy great? (laughs) I meant what I said. You can tell he is just full of excellent stories. I'm going to have to bring him back on here so that we can talk about all the other stuff he's done not relating to this movie. I love this movie. But seriously, wasn't it worth everything just hearing him talk about Morrissey and David Bowie? Who knew that? That was great. Anyway... John's made a lot of great movies. Look him up on IMDb. I realized I watched the documentary on Netflix recently about Nat King Cole. He did that too. So there's all kinds of great stuff out there. Wouldn't you love to hear stories about yes and all that kind of stuff? I would. Anyway, we'll have to look into that. By the way, I want to mention, he mentioned in there about possibility of having Joe Elliott on the show. I, uh, I'm trying to 
kind of poke around and see if I can make that happen. I'd be really surprised. I mean, you know, Joe's huge. I don't know that he would come on to talk about this. I wish he would. So I didn't want to leave that dangling out there. Uh, I'm sure it's a long shot, but I'm working on it. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, even if Joe did come on, he would probably only want to talk about this movie, which is perfectly okay with me because Joe is an excellent interview. Uh, we will be back next week, the normal time on Tuesday, with an excellent artist, a uh, member of one of my favorite bands, uh, a listener request. I think you guys are going to love this. And please, by all means, check out Beside Bowie. It is so good. It's on Hulu right now. And go check out the soundtrack. It is not just a David Bowie Greatest Hits package. Okay? We'll talk to you guys later. Oh, and a very special thank you to Cece Cronin. Uh, Cece is the publicist. She's the one who helped me get Fran Stryan on here from Hired Gun. So she is a gift that keeps on giving. Thank you, Cece, for all you've done. We'll talk to you all later.